Um, okay, um, Courtney, did you get my berry? Okay, so we're going to, um, tomorrow's our last Thursday um, of the semester. I mean, our last Thursday in which is class. So we will have section tomorrow. It'll be our last section, and um, we'll talk. Um, so you should have you should be starting um, uh, the violent bear it away. I hope you have started. I hope you're liking it. I hope you loved waiting for Godot, and um, we'll uh, talk about various things, including at least a little bit the final paper, um, which I'm not sending out topics for so much as um, and um, instructions for. Um, remember that is a research paper. So the instructions are essentially the kind of research paper you should be doing. So we will send that out. Um, I'm just um, conferring with Courtney about it. Um, but we'll send it out um, by tonight. And um, that's something that we can talk about a little bit. You can talk about a little bit in sections tomorrow. Um, okay, so there's an obvious segue from Invisible Man to Waiting for Godot. Um, there's several obvious segues. Um, one is that Godot is um, clearly invisible, um, but not invisible in the same way that the Invisible Man is invisible. So um, the question is, why is he invisible, or why doesn't he appear? Um, there's another obvious segue that I want to get to in a minute, and I want to talk about some more general things. That Waiting for Godot, in a way, might be the weirdest place to bring this up, but also might be the best place to bring it up, which is the idea that we've talked about a little bit, but that we'll talk about um, today and maybe in section tomorrow, the idea of the MacGuffin, and we will get back to that. Um, I did want to say one other thing about Invisible Man as Invisible Man, that is, um, that novel. Um, and um, one um, very, very striking contrast and telling contrast that um, it presents as a work of literature to um, most of the other things that we've read so far, which is um, one of the things that's striking about it, and this also provides um, something of a segue to Waiting for Godot, is how much it's not about the interior experience of a character, how much it's not about human psychology. Um, the Invisible Man has a psychology, but it's not an exploration of his psychology. It's an exploration of what happens to him and what people do to each other. And one difference that this makes, one way that you can see this, um, is that there's a way in which it's even more dramatic than King Lear, more a drama than King Lear, um, maybe even more of a drama than Waiting for Godot, um, which is that the writing Invis in Invisible Man is spectacular and varied. And part of the way that you can trace um, what happens to the narrator is to see both his language, he's a speaker, that's the one consistent thing about him through the novel from start to finish, is how well he speaks, but also how well he hears, how interested, how absorbed he is in the language of other people. Um, so from the first speech that he gives, from the first speeches that he hears, um, from Jim Trueblood's speech, 
speech, which really is a long speech, from Homer Barbie's speech um, to Raz the Exhorter, Raz the Extorter, Raz the Destroyer, to his own speeches, and the way he learns to say what he wants to say by listening to how people are listening to him. Um, all of that is, in a sense, about the power of language to influence people, to influence perception, to influence commitments and passions, rather than language is coming after. Um, language is some sort of depiction of human psychology, which is what we've been um, looking at, in a sense, from the start in this class. What do we know about Satan from his language in Paradise Lost? What do we know about Lear? What do we know about Edgar and Edmund? But Invisible Man, it's almost as though you're getting it from the other end. You're getting language from the point of view of what you can do with it rather than what it tells you about something deeper than language. Lily. As opposed to my inaccurate way? No, yeah, go no, ahead. No, no. Just like, uh, you know, the Twitter version. Um, okay, nice. The um, mm -hmm. active versus passive language, like, like language as an active agent as opposed to language as a well, I, so I think I don't like the term passive medium um, because in all cases the language is really, really intense. But I would say the focus in Invisible Man is on the intensity of language rather than what that intensity is conveying about other things. So um, Invisible Man is more about um, persuasion than about um, revelation. And um, the pow the, the and, and language which is persuasive, which means to be persuasive, a novel which is about persuasive language, um, is also a novel which, in some ways, is is um, um, more directly political or more directly about political issues. But one of the things that we were talking about in my section, um, and I think you were there, um, was the extent to which the other thing you can get from Invisible Man is a sense of what um, it would mean in most of the works that we're doing to feel the actual lived context of those works. We don't feel that way about the First World War, so we don't know, we don't feel about the First World War um, the way Septimus Warren Smith and Mrs. Dalloway and the other people who have lost people in that war are feeling in 1922 or 1924 um, at the point where that novel is set. But for them, it's real and live and intense and um, a very, very brooding, massive presence. We certainly don't feel about the English Civil War in the 17th century as though that's something um, that feels to us politically relevant, but to Milton and his readers, he did. So one of the things is just imagine if you can, and I think this is true of Waiting for Godot as well, um, imagine if you can that there is a political context that for us doesn't come to life, but for most of the things that we've read that came to life for their original audiences just as strongly as I hope the political context of Invisible Man, you know, in the context of Black Lives Matter, which um, it's, it's uncannily and eerily relevant to. Um, that in the same way that Invisible Man is alive for us. It doesn't come to life for us, it still is alive for us um, politically. That's something that's, that um, we may have lost to some extent. The background for Waiting for Godot is, has to be and is World War II. 
Um, the ways that you can know that are partly biographical, which is that Beckett wrote it right after the war, but it is continuous with the writing he was doing during the war. And the writing he was doing during the war, he was doing when he was in hiding from the Gestapo. And the reason he was in hiding from the Gestapo was, Taylor, don't go without picking up your paper, which I printed out. That's why he was in hiding from the Gestapo, um, to make sure Taylor wouldn't go without her paper. Um, the reason he was in hiding from the Gestapo was that he was in the French resistance. And um, someone in his cell betrayed him. Um, and he got wind of the betrayal about an hour before he would have been arrested. And um, he escaped from Paris and hid on a farm. Um, and in danger, what he did to deal with that danger and to deal with, um, with, with um, um, just awful, oppressive anxiety um, was to write, and to write novels which, in a sense, are about nothing happening. So the novel that he wrote, and Beckett started, he actually started out as a playwright and also a fiction writer. Um, he went into writing a lot of fiction, then he went back to writing both drama and fiction in the second half of his life. The novel that he wrote during World War II is a novel called Watt. Um, it's the last novel that he wrote in English. Um, after that, he started writing in French. Um, what sort of appears as the name of the scholar in Lucky's speech, where Lucky talks about the works of Puncher and Wattman, W-A-T-T. -T. Um, what happens in Watt is nothing. The main character of Watt, who is in some ways an Estragon-type <coughs> character, in some ways a Vladimir-type <coughs> character, and I hope you feel that those characters were different, um, that Vladimir and Estragon are not um, mirror images of each other. They're not doubles of each other. Lots of people think of Waiting for Godot, remember Waiting for Godot, as these two chaplain-esque figures who are mirror images of each other and who you wouldn't be able to tell if you got a line from one of them which one it came from. Um, that can be true of many individual lines, but it's certainly not true of their speeches as a whole, of their lines taken as a whole. They are different characters, and it matters that they're different characters. At any rate, Watt, however, is a kind of combination of both of them. And what Watt becomes aware of, Watt, the story of Watt is um, Watt's experiences in the house of Mr. Knott. So you can imagine that Mr. Knott is a forerunner of Godot. Um, Godot, you have to think about what that name could mean. Um, I, we saw the Abbey Theatre um, do it in Boston, that is an Irish company do it, and they pronounce his name as Gatto, um, which really emphasizes the God part of Godot. In French, of course, how do you pronounce it? Godot. Yes. So, um, the, there is, at least among the possible puns in the name, is the idea is that God is nothing, God zero. Um, God, but then with a zero or an O or a nothing at the end of it. Um, the O signifying nothing. Um, so that is one possibility. Mr. Not is also someone who really never appears in the novel Watt, even though Watt is his servant at his house. Um, but what Watt sees in the course of the novel is, as he puts it, that nothing 
happens. And he thinks about how nothing happens. And he says nothing happens as though it were something, that nothing takes place and unfolds itself and does what it does as though it were something, and yet it's nothing. So the joke about Waiting for Godot when it first came out, when it was first performed, was that it's a play in which nothing happens twice in Act 1 and then again in Act 2. Nothing happens. And the idea is that what you're seeing happening is nothing itself. And um, the idea of nothing happening, um, how does that get to be a play? Um, why does that get to be a play? What makes it into a play. So what I would want you to think is that there are various kinds of nothing in, in Waiting for Godot that Beckett is exploring. Um, and the nothing that really happens is human life. The nothing that really happens is the nothingness of waiting. The very title, Waiting for Godot, suggests an ending which is at the end Godot will show up, that they are waiting, but at some point we'll find out what it is they're waiting for and why. Um, and there are clues to what it is they're waiting for and why. Um, one of the places to go, so let's go to the very end of the play, and I just want to ask you um, what you think is going on here. Um, the boy comes with a message from Godot, this is three or four pages um, at the end, um, from the end. Um, a boy, enter boy, stage right, this is after, we're going to look at these last few pages and we're going to go back a little bit, but enter boy, stage right, after Vladimir is going to and fro um, and brooding, enter boy, stage right, he halts and there's silence and the boy says, Mr. Vladimir turns, says the stage direction. If you guys have a page number, tell me. 81. 81. Um, Mr. Vladimir turns. Mr. Albert. Why Mr. Albert? Why is the boy calling him Albert? Anyone know? Hannah? His name responds to the previous day. Yeah, um, because that's what he says his name is the previous day or the name he responded to the previous day. The previous day, we get a sense that that name is um, a, um, a pseudonym, that he's using that name in order not to use his real name, which is Vladimir. What's, D what's um, Gogo's real name? Estragon. Estragon. How do we know that? It's only written in... Yeah, it's never mentioned. His name, Estragon, is never mentioned. We only know it from the speech prefixes and stage direction. And if you're in the theater, you would know it from the playbill. Um, but here's a play where Vladimir is only named once at the very start of the play. Estragon isn't named at all. Um, we would do better to call them Didi and Gogo, which are the nicknames. Didi from Vlad, D, Mir, Gogo from Estragon, the G-O in gone. So we would be, do better um, to think of him that way. The audience would think of them that way. But also, as Albert, do you know what Didi, what, excuse me, what Gogo's um, fake name or nom de guerre or pseudonym is? Yeah. Adam. Adam. Um, what other names that are not the names of characters in the play come up in the play? Yeah. Uh, Cain and Abel. 
Cain and Abel. So three of those names are clearly from what foundational work of human culture? <laughs> oh, the Bible. That's not what I said. Yes, the Bible. Good. Um, Adam, Cain, Abel. Um, what about Albert? Why Albert? There are three A's, right? Adam, Abel, Albert. But what else would Albert be doing in this play? Who's the most famous Albert of the 20th century? Einstein. Einstein, yeah. Um, Einstein, whose, um, whose theory changed our views of time, um, who relativized time, who made it the case that people started thinking about time as something strange and immeasurable, and even, to use a word from Waiting for Godot, abyssal that time becomes an abyss. Um, so those names are clearly not innocent ones. Adam isn't, um, Cain and Abel aren't, they stand for all humanity, is what um, Estragon says when um, um, Lucky, who is, who is thought, who does Estragon think is named Abel and who does he think is named Cain, do you remember? He thinks that Pozo, yeah. I think he calls uh, Pozo both Abel and Cain. No, he calls Lucky Cain. So Pozo is Abel and Lucky is Cain. Um, and then he says, ah, so it's all humanity. Um, Cain and Abel representing <coughs> everyone, the victim and the killer. So here the boy comes in. Is it the same boy as the day before or not? There's an answer to this question. What do you think the answer is, Hannah? Yes, because how else would he have known to call him Albert? OK, so yes, how else does he know the name? Um, but he seems a little bit hesitant, Mr. Vladimir turns Mr. Albert. Um, a lot of this depends on how you're going to act it. Yeah, what were you going to say? Well, it says that the boy says that it wasn't the same boy. Like, he says, this is my first time. Yeah. So he says, this is the first time I'm here. No, I wasn't here yesterday. So that explains the hesitation, certainly as a dramatic moment. Um, Mr. Vladimir turns, Mr. Albert, dot, dot, dot. Vladimir, off we go again. Do you not recognize me? So he's asking that question in a way that tells a director or tells an actor how the boy is supposed to say it. Um, no, sir, says the boy. Vladimir, it wasn't you came yesterday. No, sir. This is your first time. Yes, sir. Um, so when Vladimir says, do you not recognize me, does he recognize the boy or not? These are directorial choices. You may think, OK, it's Beckett. It's puzzling. Who cares? You would be wrong um, about the third of those. Um, the first two, it is Beckett, and it is puzzling. Um, but you'd be wrong to ask who cares. Um, so what is? Um, how would you direct this? How would you play it? Yeah, Maxie. Well, confusion is kind of a theme throughout the whole entire thing, so I think he would be confused by the boy. Like, every, even when he sees Lucky and Pose, like these two see Lucky and Pose again, they're always kind of forgetting who they are and stuff. And well, Vladimir less than Estragon. Estragon well, is the one who denies having seen them before. Um, Vladimir knows what's going on. He has seen them before. 
Um, he keeps telling Estragon, don't you remember what happened yesterday? Estragon has the dimmest memory. Yes, I was kicked. Was it them? Really? Um, the the script tells us, and I think, again, this is, this is um, an interesting question, an interesting fact for interpretation. Um, the setting for Act 2 says, the next day. So there are things that we can take as authoritative in this play if we trust its author. Um, that is, the author of the play tells us certain things that the audience watching the play without that what's called a paratext, without knowing things that are not actually part of the script, speech prefixes um, and settings and so on, um, that the audience wouldn't get. If you don't read the play, and if you don't have a playbill when you go to see the play, um, there are things about it you won't know that nevertheless are canon, um, as fan fiction glossaries put it. And canon is that Gogo's name is Estragon. And canon is that it is the next day. Um, nothing in the play tells you that it's the next day, um, but the setting tells you that it's the next day. Um, and canon is that it's the same boy. How do we know that? Yeah? For me, it's the fact that the first time the boy appears, uh, things are phrased as questions. You don't know me? Mm -hmm. And then later he's like, you came yesterday. You didn't come yesterday, right? This is your first time, right? I've heard this all before. Like, it's not a question anymore. He's like, I know what's going to happen. You're going to deny knowing me, even though we met multiple times. Because he also alludes to the fact that he's seen this boy before, the first time they meet. So... Yeah, so it's the second time that nothing is, hap is happening um, that makes it a different nothing from the first time. The repetition of a nothing means that it's not only a nothing but also a repetition. And um, repetition is something different from an original. And that's registered in the play. So that's part of it. Um, there's another thing just like knowing that Estragon's name is Estragon, though. Yeah. Say that in the cast of characters. Louder, louder. Let everyone hear you, Rebecca. In the cast of characters, there's only one boy. Yes, the cast of characters gives you one boy. Um, so there again, the dramatis personae, the cast list, tells you that it's one boy. Um, now, this, this isn't dispositive. That is, you could make an argument, but the burden of proof would have to be on you um, that it's one actor, but that doesn't prove that it's one boy. But if you want to make that argument, and you could possibly make that argument, um, then you would have to have a reason that one actor one name of a character in the cast of characters because it's not boy played by um, uh, Richard Moore, it's simply boy, why that boy can be two boys, why you can use the word boy to refer to two boys rather than to just one boy. Um, if you make that argument, you might get insight into the play. Um, if you ask, it might be a similar kind of insight as the kind of insight you might get if you ask, is the Invisible Man Reinhardt or not? Um, the argument that he is would take some arguing, but it's the kind of arguing that can argue yourself into insight. So that's a possibility. Um, that it is two boys, but it's not obviously two boys, at least Beckett 
um, makes it more obvious that it's a single boy. So off we go again, says Vladimir. Do you not recognize me? No, sir. It wasn't you came yesterday. No, sir. This is your first time. Yes, sir. Silence. You have a message from Mr. Godot. Yes, sir. He won't be coming this evening. No, sir. So, yeah, as you guys say, it's, it's, he's not asking, he's telling. He knows how this story goes. But he'll come tomorrow. Yes, sir. Without fail. Yes, sir. Well, that's lucky. Or it's not lucky. Lucky is gone. Silence. Did you meet anyone? No, sir. Two other, I love this, two other, he hesitates. Men. Why the hesitation there? Yeah. Okay, so one question is, are Pozo and Lucky, do they count as men, as humans? Yeah. Well, Lucky isn't really treated like a man. No, although he's got the fanciest philosophical speech in the entire play, he's also treated like an animal or like um, a slave. He's certainly not treated as a human being ought to be treated. What does that do to Pozo? Does that make him human or not? If Lucky is not human, does that make Pozo human by contrast? Or does that show that he who dehumanizes, <coughs> namely Pozo, is also um, he who no longer has a title to being called human? Question mark. What do you guys think? Is Pozo human the way Didi and Gogo are or not? Are you hesitating? Okay, all of you take a note. We hesitate. That way you'll remember. Um, what about Didi and Gogo, though? Two other, how do you know the other is, um, the other is basically saying, did you see two other, and the question, the word he doesn't know whether to use or not is men, but the other does apply to him and Gogo. In other words, it doesn't quite make sense to say that the hesitation is whether Lucky and Pozo count as men, because he doesn't hesitate before the word other. Because he uses the word other, he's saying all four of us are similar. Two other, but what are, what are we? Do you see the difference there? It's, he could say two other men, and then we would underline the, quest, the, the, um, the fact that it's a question, are they men or not, those others? Or is it, as it in fact is, two other whatever it is that we are? Or whatever it is that we share with them? Perhaps we're men and they're not. Maybe it would be better to say two other animals. I don't want to over-labor this because in the theater it's just a very quick joke. But it's a joke that people will get, especially if it's well acted. Um, but it could go either way. Did you meet anyone? No, sir. Two other men? I didn't see anyone, sir. Silence. Then Vladimir. What does he do, Mr. Godot? So pretending to be asking an innocent question. What does he do, Mr. Godot? Silence. Do you hear me? Yes, sir, says the boy. Um, why does uh, Vladimir ask that question? Do you hear me? Yeah. Because the boy 
Yeah, because the boy was silent. Um, and Vladimir's question, again, it would be a typical question if someone doesn't respond to a question that you're asking. But for Vladimir, it's an important one. Am I being heard? Is it the case that I am there for you? Yes, sir, says the boy. Well, he does nothing, sir. So, yeah, that's what he's been doing for the last couple of hours. And what we have been watching is the nothing that he's been doing. He's been doing nothing for us. Silence. How is your brother? Vladimir asks. How does he know about the brother? Because, say it again? Yeah. The day before, what did he find out about um, the difference between the way Godot treats the boy and the way Godot treats his brother? Yeah. Yes, so he beats his brother, but he doesn't beat the boy. So now Vladimir has a little bit of a trick here. One of the things, again, it's really neat and interesting and important when reading a Beckett play um, to think, uh, when reading a Beckett play as opposed to watching one, to think about how you would direct or act it. Um, Beckett is, wants you to be thinking about that. Beckett also directed his own plays a lot. Um, and he worked really, really hard with the actors in directing them. And um, what he particularly told them was that they shouldn't be acting. Um, that is, what he did not want was really good acting. Um, I saw Waiting for Godot, we saw Waiting for Godot a couple of years ago with um, Patrick Stewart and Ian McClellan in New York. And they're fabulous actors. And it was really, really great, but it was also wrong the way they did it because they were always Patrick Stewart and Ian McClellan. And um, what they were was Patrick Stewart and Ian McClellan doing Samuel Beckett in New York, and that was great. Um, and that gave them a kind of self-confidence which was both right and wrong for the characters. Um, they did these roles really, really well, but you could see they were doing the roles really, really well. And that wasn't quite right to see them doing them really, really well. The actors should be a little bit baffled and a little bit uncertain here, but, and they should have to think all the time about how they're doing this. So how's your brother? He's sick, sir. Perhaps it was he came yesterday, because we don't know that he's, he's hurt, but simply that he's sick. I don't know, sir, the boy says. Silence. Then Vladimir, softly. Why softly? That's always, an adverb like that is always an important stage direction. Why softly has he a beard, Mr. Godot? Yeah. He doesn't want to scare away the boy when the boy might be doing some sort of information. Yeah, so he doesn't want to scare away the boy, but what you're also getting here is um, a typical movie or play gesture towards I really need the answer to this question. And I need the answer to this question because it will solve things for me. Um, he is echoing here, as he sometimes does, he Vladimir and he Beckett, is echoing Hamlet here. Um, in, do, did people see the to be or not to be echo? Um, that is the question. Do you remember that? Yeah, find it if you can. Um, there are a couple of other echoes of Shakespeare. There are echoes of the Bible. There are echoes of um, Shelley. 
Um, there are also dimmer, but um, in some way deeper echoes of um, Freud. And um, one thing that you might think about here is that passage in Freud that we did the first week of class, which was the burning child passage. Remember the dream of the burning child? Father, can't you see that I am burning? Um, where the father is asleep when the child, when the dead child is awake. And when the father wakes up, the child is asleep in the sleep of death. Um, when Vladimir is looking at the sleeping estragon, we'll get to that in a minute if we have time, but when Vladimir is looking at the sleeping estragon, he is in something like that situation. Beckett read the interpretation of dreams. Um, Beckett, in fact, got psychoanalyzed by someone whom Freud had psychoanalyzed. Um, and Beckett was really, really interested in psychoanalysis, not as a truth about the mind, um, but which it is, but that's irrelevant here. Um, but as a truth about how people talk to each other about not understanding themselves and not understanding each other. If you look at transcripts of psychoanalytic sessions, some of them will sound like moments in Waiting for Godot, um, where you have an analyst and a client and the kinds of questions they ask each other, the kinds of answers they don't give each other, are peculiar in this way. But here, at any rate, what we're getting is a crucial question. In Hamlet, as I say, um, Hamlet turns to Horatio when Horatio says that he's seen his father the night before. And Hamlet doesn't believe him, and he wants to know if this is true. And he says, are you sure it was my father? And then he starts asking about the beard of the ghost whom Hamlet has seen. His beard was grizzled. No, says Hamlet. And Horatio answers, it was, as I've seen it in this life, a sable silvered. Um, so the point is, yeah, that beard is a sign of recognition. When you know what someone's beard looks like in Hamlet, that becomes a clue that that's an accurate depiction, who they really are. That actually happens a lot in Shakespeare. You will remember that Kent shaves his beard off in King Lear, um, what he calls raising his visage. He shaves his beard off in order not to be recognized by Lear. Later, Lear when he sees Gloucester, calls him, ha, he says, Goneril with a white beard. Um, so it's not that Beckett is saying, oh, yes, the audience will think, ah, Shakespeare, he's as good as Shakespeare. He's talking about beards just as Shakespeare does. Um, but that Beckett himself um, is taking what is a very standard um, possibility of recognition, a sign that the person you're describing is the person they mean. Um, and he's taking a standard clue. And by having Vladimir ask the question softly, he's saying, you're right. This is an important question, which I really want an answer to, and which I don't want to scare the boy away by demanding it too strongly. So softly, has he a beard, Mr. Godot? It's false casualness. Oh, by the way, does he have a beard? Um, boy, yes, sir. Fair or, he hesitates, or black. 
So what word, what doesn't he ask? Fair or? Why does he hesitate before coming up with the second color? It's not that hard to come up with colors. Why does he hesitate? What question, what color does he not come up with? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Okay, so why would Godot have a white beard? Older, yeah. Okay, so fair or, and then he doesn't say white because he, like Hamlet, doesn't want to give the right answer in the multiple choice. So this is a multiple choice question. Um, Hamlet gives Horatio a true or false question. His beard was grizzled, no. And um, the trick that Hamlet is playing on Horatio is, no, his beard was not grizzled. Hamlet is implying <laughs> that if it's my father, then you saw someone with a grizzled beard. But that's a little trick. The answer is, um, no, it was, as I have seen it in his life, a sable silvered. Um, false. It was not grizzled. Um, same little trick here. Multiple choice. Was his beard fair, A, or black, B? And the answer is none of the above. I think it's white, sir. Silence. Christ have mercy on us. Yeah. Sorry. Can I just put an additional thought here? Yes. Which is that he doesn't want to say white because he doesn't want it to be white? Yes. So he, he doesn't want to say white because he doesn't want it to be white, as Christ have mercy upon us shows. Why doesn't he want it to be white? Okay, so time is running out. He's an old man. Um, if he's got a white beard, how much longer are they going to have to wait? On the other hand, of course, um, um, Vladimir and Estragon are also old. So we know that they've been doing stuff since, um, for about 50 years, they've been together for about 50 years, pretty much since the building of the Eiffel Tower, which was 1889. Um, and here... Um, this question of old age is coming up again. Okay, go to Lucky's speech, which is, um, remember that's one of the orders that he follows. Um, it's the longest speech in Waiting for Godot, and it's a speech that is close to sensible or close to nonsensible. It's not quite clear which. Um, if you find whatever page it's on, say so. What is it? 33. 33. Huh, significant. Not really. Um, so um, Poso is giving Lucky orders. Stop! Lucky stops back. Lucky moves back. Stop! Lucky stops. Turn! Lucky turns towards auditorium. Think! Which is uh, pretty funny. Notice those are all stage directions that Poso is giving Lucky. Um, then we get a very long stage direction for what's supposed to happen during his tirade, as Beckett calls it. Um, and then Lucky gives his little speech. And his speech is about God. So think, what do you think about? You think about God. And what does Lucky say? Given the existence as uttered forth in the public works of Puncher and Watman, so there's Watt again, of Puncher and Wattman, of a personal god, qua, 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 um, which might be a duck, 
um, quacking, or it might be the philosophical term qua, meaning um, insofar as or in the in the very um, position or status of. Um, a god, qua god, is someone um, who is immortal, but a qua god, man, a god qua man, like Jesus Christ, is someone who is mortal. Um, so it may be that he is attempting to say that Latin philosophical term that's used in English philosophical prose, or it may be that he is devolving into blather, but he goes on, the existence of a personal God with white beard. So are we supposed to notice that? Does Beckett notice that? Is that why um, Vladimir is so horrified by the idea of Godot having a white beard? Question mark again? It's a real question, not a rhetorical one. <laughs> does it have an answer, though? Well, why does Vladimir... I mean, this is one of those questions where you have to ask um, whether we're dealing with something <coughs> that has an answer or not. And one way to, to answer that is to say, this is what we were talking about, for example, when we were talking about uh, Miss Tina's relation to Miss Juliana. Um, that is, there was a question that it seemed pretty clear we could answer. Um, even though it's not explicitly answered, the very fact that the suggestion is made um, is the answer because that's the only answer there could be. Um, it feels like when Vladimir says softly, has he a beard, Mr. Godot? Yes, sir. Fair or black? I think it's white, sir. Christ have mercy on us. That's a standard movie revelation. That's a standard play revelation. Like, so did he come on the 6 a.m. train this morning or the 10 a.m. train? I think he came last night, sir. God have mercy on us. You know, in, in standard um, dramatic um, pulp drama, that's the signal of a revelation. That's a signal of something important being discovered, a signal of a very important recognition. Um, and um, the only thing it seems that Vladimir could be recognizing is that Godot is God. Um, or so, Freud. Or Freud. The Godot is... Yes, our, <laughs> Freud with a white beard. Okay. Okay, good point. Or the Godot is Freud. Or that Godot is... Godoneral with a white beard. Okay, yes, Freud, that's good. That works. Um, do you know about analytic silence? Freud's um, policy as an analyst was never to speak. Um, he would occasionally ask questions, but his argument was that part of what psychoanalysis was about was never reacting to what the analysand was saying. Um, that if you didn't react, um, the person would keep saying more and keep hearing themselves say more. And that was really, really important. So this is called analytic silence. And it's a crucial concept 
within psychoanalysis. So Godot certainly um, does represent analytic silence um, since he never shows up and never speaks, but he does have a white beard. Um, so one thing Godot is, like the Aspern papers, is he is a MacGuffin. Um, and remember that what a MacGuffin is is the goal of a narrative, what the objective of the characters whose story we're following is to get, is always an objective, is to get something. A MacGuffin is a particular kind of objective, which is that a MacGuffin is an objective where we know what it is that someone is looking for, but not, but only by name. That is, we know in Mission Impossible 3 that they're looking for the rabbit's foot, but we don't know what the rabbit's foot is. All we know <laughs> is that the Impossible Missions team had better get it before any of the bad guys get it. Yeah. So like the papers? Yeah. So we know what they are. They're Aspirin's papers, but we don't know what's in them. So what a story with a MacGuffin will do, and what makes MacGuffins really, really interesting in um, literature. And when you read, uh, when you watch The Man Who Shot Liberty Valance, um, there's a major MacGuffin in that movie. Um, but you don't even know it's a MacGuffin until the end. Um, but when you watch The Man Who, Who Shot Liberty Valance, which you'll be able to watch on Latte um, over the weekend, we'll talk about it um, next week. Um, as well as the violent bear it away. Um, think about MacGuffins, because there's a major, major one in that movie, and um, it's a spoiler if you even know what that MacGuffin is. That would already be a spoiler. Um, you don't know what it is, right? You're not about to say. Yes. Different spellings. Um, Hitchcock spelt it M A. Um, he's a person who made the um, notion famous, M-A-G-U-F-F-I-N. So the way MacGuffins generally work is people are after something because they know that it's important or valuable. They know if the bad guys get it, the world will be destroyed. Or they know if the good guys get it, um, the world will be saved. They know that um, this objective is an important one, but they don't know why. And not knowing why gives us two different tracks of narrative interest. One track is, um, will they get it. Now, if they're just going after you know, some diamonds that are really valuable, if it's a heist, then the question, will they get it, is the only narrative question. The other question is, why is everyone after it? And that's if we don't know what the MacGuffin is. So one question in Waiting for Godot, it's as though Beckett has purified this to the most pure idea possible which is we're waiting for Godot to come, which feels like that will be the climax of the play when Godot finally comes. And when he comes, we'll know why they were waiting. So Godot is the perfect MacGuffin. When will he come and why will it matter? Those are the questions. And the answer is, well, he doesn't come, and we don't know why he matters, but he may be God or he may be nothing. Let's go back, just we won't have time to talk about this, but because it's um, so amazing, these speeches. Um, Vladimir tells, this is about five pages before the end, or six pages before the end, um, Vladimir asks Pozo to tell Lucky to sing. Before you go, tell him to sing. Who? Lucky. To sing? 
Yes, or to think or to recite. Remember, he thought before. But he is dumb, says Pozo. That is, he can't speak. Dumb? Dumb, he can't even groan. Dumb? Since when? Since the day before he had that extremely long speech. And then Pozo has his great speech. Have you not done tormenting me with your accursed time? It's abominable. When? When? One day, is that not enough for you? One day he went dumb. One day I went blind. One day we'll go deaf. One day we were born. One day we shall die. And then, if there are any central lines in the play, it's these. The same day, the same second, is that not enough for you? They give birth astride of a grave. The light gleams an instant, then it's night once more. So that's his description of life. That comes from Hamlet too, and it's a very, very powerful reworking of a moment in Hamlet. In Hamlet, Hamlet is um, told, and I, by the way, if you've read Rosencrantz and Guildenstern are dead, um, it's very much based on Waiting for Godot. Um, what Stoppard is doing is taking um, uh, Didi and Gogo and turning them into Rosencrantz and Guildenstern um, and going back to Hamlet. But Hamlet has sent Rosencrantz and Guildenstern off to their deaths, and Horatio says, the king will hear soon. Um, you don't really have much time. And Hamlet says, um, it will be short. Then he says, the interim is mine. The time that I have is between now and then. That's mine. And then he goes on an amazing speech. A man's life is no more than to say one. That is, for Hamlet, time, he realizes, the only time there ever is is the present moment. It's not like you own the past. It's not like you can own the future. All there is is the present moment. It's always the same day. The day of birth is the day of death because there is only the present, only the present day. What Beckett does is to understand in a deep way that that's how drama works. That drama isn't just a way of conveying some literary message, but the idea that day after day, night after night, and there are jokes about this in Waiting for Godot, the same scene is played over, that not only does nothing happen twice, but nothing happens twice eight performances a week. And it's always the same, over and over and over. And Beckett uses the fact that it is drama to make the point that we strut and fret our hour upon the stage and then are heard no more. Um, okay, we'll stop there. We can discuss more in discussion section tomorrow. Um, but remember, tomorrow's our last discussion section. I looked up um, Dumas, by the way. And so the other guy helped him a whole lot, but Dumas did the final um, polishes of each thing that he wrote. Um, I have a couple of papers here, but only a couple. Um, Taylor, yeah. Yes. Okay. Um, I can put in the course title. 
And um, what did you get on your first paper? Or an A, and then the last one was A slash A minus. Yeah, okay. Um, where are you applying to? Okay. Thank you. Yeah. I was wondering if you have my paper. Or... Uh, not yet. Okay. All right. Thanks. Because um, you got you got yours in on like Monday, right? Yeah. So yeah. Yeah. So um, soon. Okay. Yeah. No. That was my question. <laughs>